Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. As always, I'd first like to wish all the mothers here Happy Mother's Day. And uh, we're very blessed. Um, our mom's a blessing. I mean, what do we do without our moms, right? I mean, and uh, we just need to realize what moms go through and what a blessing they really are. And I just wanted to acknowledge you this morning and let you know how much you are appreciated, not only by your children, but by your husbands. And, you know, just uh, also, you know, the other ladies here, the wives and those um, who serve the church and who disciple the other young ladies and stuff, you know, your work as well is very appreciated and it's a very motherly calling as well. And let us recognize that this morning um, as uh, the mothers here in this church are just greatly, greatly loved and uh, we're greatly appreciated. So with that being said, we are going to continue on through the book of Romans. So turn, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. We'll be picking up where we left off. This has been a great journey. Uh, it's just been a great uh, and powerful journey going through the book of Romans. I have been greatly edified and encouraged and extremely convicted as we've gone through this book uh, with the church. And today we'll be picking up where we left off and picking up in verse 9, 12, chapter 12, verse 9. And we'll be finishing the chapter um, at verse 21. So let us go ahead and be let's go ahead and read this. I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. Which reads Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as, as much as depends on you, live peaceful, peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. In the final verse, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful, Lord, to be called your children. Your redeemed children through the precious, holy, righteous blood of Christ, your Son. Lord, we come to the throne of grace this morning. 
not cowering in fear, but in confidence in the perfect and complete work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we offer you up our praise and our worship and our adoration. All of our affections, Lord, we give them to you, Lord. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for keeping us. Lord, thank you for building your church in which the Bible says will never never fail, which will always prevail. So Lord, we commit this Lord's Day into your hands. Lord, we ask that your name would be glorified and that you would empower the preaching of your word. Open the hearts of your people, Lord. Remove any obstacle that would keep them from worshiping you. Let them not look at me, Lord, as anything special because I'm not, but let them look to you, O God, for everything. And it's in your precious name I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul here is basically within the confines of these verses from 9 to 21 is really describing what would be known as true, true Christianity. He has already defined the gospel extensively in the first 11 chapters. He's not proving the validity of the Christian faith, but here now he's proving the validity of the Christian faith for those who have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. He is no longer explaining the system behind our belief, but showing that our belief will ultimately expose whether we are true or whether we are false. This is not a scathing diatribe against anyone in particular, but clearly showing that once a person has come to faith, they will no doubt bear the marks of their profession. Our behavior, brothers and sisters, will ultimately determine the one in which we profess to follow. And I'd like to spend some time this morning unpacking these last 13 verses of chapter 12. Paul arranges this last portion of this chapter in order to show what the life of a Christian should look like after they had come to the truth. The result of what he has preached throughout the entirety of the last 11 chapters of this book. Paul sums it all up by saying in the very last verse of this chapter, verse 21, by concluding, encapsulizing everything that he has just said by saying this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In essence, this is the Christian life. The Christian life should be characterized by the overcoming life. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In 1 John 5, 4, John says, for whatever is born of God 
overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. At one time, we were all in bondage, as you all well know, the slavery of sin and the slavery of this world. And 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The very world in which the Bible says that we as believers in Jesus Christ have overcome and are continually overcoming. God had told Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Paul echoes the same view in mind here in Romans 12, 19, where he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. In Revelations 12, 11, the Bible says, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. This has given you some idea as an example of what the life looks like as Paul was proclaiming through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans when he's dealing with the separate people groups and how everyone comes together under one banner, under one king, under one gospel, and that is Jesus Christ. But Paul shows now not only are we saved by this gospel, but we are also empowered by this gospel. We're enabled by grace to be overcomers. We're no longer in slavery to the sin that held us captive. But the Bible says that we have been set free. He who the Son sets free will be free. And this is the power of the gospel. This is what Paul is dealing with. This is what he's talking about here. This is the culmination of everything that he's been preaching. This is what he's dealing with. This is what he's showing them. This isn't just a bunch of words written on a piece of paper. These aren't just directions to life. These aren't just good principles. But the reality is that Jesus Christ came to save men. And when he saves men, he transforms men. He saves them for his glory. He changes them and transforms them. They're no longer a slave to sin. And Ivan talked about, but they have become a slave, a willing slave to righteousness. As it were, they went down into the grave to the old master, sin, serving the old master. And the Bible says in Romans 6 that they have risen to a new master, And that is our King and Lord, Jesus Christ. Our faith, brothers and sisters, is a overcoming faith. Even Paul passes down to us what he himself experienced. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says in in, uh, verses 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried. And that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul is preaching the very gospel 
that had so transformed his own life. And he is even showing, based upon his own life, what radical changes happen to an individual once they come to faith. Your life changes. You're no longer the same person. You become a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. This is the overcoming faith of the Christian life. And this is why we must remind ourselves that our actions are a direct reflection of our faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your actions in this life, the way that you handle things, the way you deal with things, the way you talk, your communication, your behavior is an indication of what you believe or who you believe in? Or do we come to the place where we just want to be religious folks, where we have a set pattern of religious views, but yet we can go on and live however we want? Because that's not the gospel. That's not what the Word of God does. The Word of God not only cleanses, but it transforms our lives. It's interesting because it really deals with sanctified behavior. Sanctified behavior. Not just behavior. We can all pretend. We can all perform. We can all act a certain way. But we're talking about sanctified behavior. We're talking about behavior that's birthed from being born again. Becoming a new creature with new habits, new affections, new urges, new thoughts, new patterns of life, new ways of loving one another. Where the Bible says that we're no longer hypocrites, that our love is no longer hypocritical. In uh, Webster's Dictionary of 1828, it defines behavior as this. It says to behave oneself, which really means to govern oneself to have in command. Here we're talking about self-government. The ability to, where before we never had self-control, right? We were beast. We were darkness, the Bible says in Ephesians. We were held captive to the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. These things dictated our every thought our every movement, our every action, this was our standard as unbelievers. But the Bible says in Psalm 119.9, it asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And this would be to any individual speaking the word of God. How can any of us, any one of us in this room keep our ways pure? Isn't that the, the, uh, the question of the day? So many books are being written out there on how to stay holy, how to keep pure, how to do this, how to do that. But the Bible makes it very simple. It says, by keeping your word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping God's word. This isn't a, in, in one sense, this isn't saying be good. This is saying that God's word, by the power of God's word, it has the changing qualities because it is placed within us by God himself. Galatians 5 speaks of this, but the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. This is the power of God working within those who are his and making them into a overcoming believer. 
Proverbs 25 says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. In Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, Paul breaks these all down, in which we're going to look at, into three segments. The first one is our relationship towards God. Number two is our relationship towards others. And number three, our relationship toward our enemies. And these basically are the measuring gauges which Paul uses to show whether or not or the authenticity of our faith. Let's look at the first one, which is really our relationship towards God. See, God saves us to make us worshipers of himself. 1 Peter 4.11 says that God in all things may be glorified. See, the glory of God is the silver thread which, which, much run, which must run through all of our actions. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this is interesting because the Bible tells us to let love be without hypocrisy. And listen, because God, he himself, is love, he is the definition of love, therefore the hypocrisy that Paul is dealing with here is not just this fake love towards one another. He is in one sense, but the reality is if it doesn't first start with God himself and the truth of our love and our affections towards God himself first, we can find ourselves being hypocritical towards God himself. We want to talk about being hypocrites to everybody else and all the hypocrites in the church, but the reality is, is that are we hypocritical towards God? Because this is where it all begins. This is where the hypocrisy of love starts and can be remedied. Because the Bible says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is evil. Good. And obviously, these aren't just do's and don'ts, but these values are found and placed in God Himself. Our love towards God must not be fake. I mean, God knows all things, God knows the motives and the intents of our hearts. So we know that to be true. But we must start here with the gospel. We must be confronted with this reality of God's grace saving such filthy, depraved human beings like ourselves. Why does he even save us in the first place? He doesn't save us just for ourselves. So we can go along and be good people and just love one another. He saves us for his own glory that we would become true worshipers of God. This is the whole idea that he takes an enemy of God and changes and transforms them into a what? A worshiper of God. For whose glory? For his glory. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God was busy reconciling the world, not for us, but for himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. In Genesis 15, 1, God makes it very clear to Abraham 
that there's no other motive here for your love. No other focus for your love except me. He says, fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceedingly great reward. God tells Abraham right off the bat that he is his exceedingly great reward. He's telling Abraham, I am your reward. Abraham, you get God. You get me. I am your gift. I am your pleasure. I am what you get. I am your exceedingly great reward. I like what John Piper said. He said, if we come to God for any other reason than God himself, we come in vain. Do you realize at that very moment when you repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ that you get God? That you have God. This is why we can't be circumstantial Christians. This is why we can't allow our circumstances to dictate how we behave. Because the reality, whether you're in a dungeon or in a palace, you have God. It doesn't change. You could be burned at the stake or thrown to the lions. But the reality is, this is the, this is the sobering reality, is that ultimately we get God. We belong to God. Our first priority as Christians is to worship God, to glorify Him. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and what? To enjoy Him forever. This is the motive of the Christian life once we are converted. God takes a sinner who is running from God, converts him, turns him around, and he is running toward God. And this is the beauty of God's mercy because we become true worshipers of the living God. And it's at that point when we become true worshipers of God himself, we can ultimately love one another. These other behaviors and affections ultimately stem, the plumb line is ultimately our relationship with God. Does that make sense? In 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, but we have this treasure, this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. 1 Peter 3, 15 says, but sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts. The primary motive in life of a believer is to set apart the Lord God in our hearts. He becomes our fixation, infatuated with God. What a beautiful thing that is. We were reading, uh, my wife and I were reading a devotion the other day and it was just really saying how we can get off track and be so captured by a theological view or particular principles to such an extent that it literally kills our relationship with God. Not that theology isn't important because theology determines the Christ that we worship. Doctrine is extremely important. Of course it is. But it should never erase the love and the infatuation that we have for our Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to a person to be converted, not a set of principles. We come to Jesus Christ and are converted. 
We should love Him and worship Him, spend time with Him in the midst of figuring everything else out. Romans 12, 9, let your love be without hypocrisy. <clears throat> Another word uses dissimulation, which really means hiding under a false appearance. Being fake. Being a fake. It's kind of like, like the guy who can pray in church for like, a, like an hour, right? And then he goes home and cusses everybody out in his house. It's this whole idea that you know, we can, we, can, we can put on an appearance in front of the church and try to come across as looking like we're some spiritual authority, but in reality, we're not. And this is why Paul makes it very clear in the next, uh, on the end of this verse when he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. One thing I love about Paul, it, when he's dealing with through the Holy Spirit, he's not just showing us what's wrong. He's showing us the antidote. He's showing us the remedy, what to do. Instead of stealing with these hands, now work with these hands. There's always a deterrent with action. John the, Baptist, John the Baptist himself dealt with those religious folks of his day who came and had other motives. It says when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? And then in 3.8 he says, therefore, produce fruit. Here it is again. He's dealing with the same concept, the same portion of what Paul is talking about, this reality of being born again. As Galatians 5 says, and having this new life, as Romans 6 talks about the new life, he's talking to them. He's saying, therefore, produce fruit consistent with your repentance. Another way of saying it is, saying it is this, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. This is what he's saying. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of, wrath of God? He confronts them. He deals with their religious hypocrisy. Their hypocritical love towards God that's not real, which is a stench in God's very nostrils. He deals with that very aspect right there by cutting to the quick, where he says that the axe is laid to the root on this situation. To love the Lord God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. In 1 John, verse 2, it says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Interestingly enough, whoever says he abides with Christ, whoever says he's born again, ought to walk in the same way. Walk in the same way in which Christ walks. Now, obviously, we're not God. I'm not saying that. That's not what the Bible said. But the Word of God says this should be the pattern of our life is our Lord Jesus Christ, not the patterns of this world. In Romans 12, 16, it says, Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinions. These are things a lot of times that you see, even especially in the Reformed camp, where they want to bicker and fight over things that God has never showed them in His Word. The secret decrees of God. There are things in the Scriptures that we just necessarily don't know everything, but God's given us enough in His Word 
to know what we need to know. This is the wisdom of God. And this is where Paul said, do not set your mind on high things, but instead, but instead, because what these things do is provoke your pride. You get puffed up, and next thing you know, you are being divisive, and all kinds of things happen within the congregation. But he says, associate with the humble. Practice that form of lifestyle where you're associating your life with things of humility. Choices are laid before us every day in ways that we can choose. We can go one way or the other. We can make choices in the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our time, the way that we speak to one another, the way that we deal with one another within our own congregation. You have a choice. You can go the route of of being humble, associating with the humble, or you can be one of those who is wise in your own opinions. So let's let our love be without hypocrisy. Let us seek the Lord. Call upon His name. That He would be pleased to pour out His Spirit upon us and change us and, and make us into those humble servants to where the love that we, that, we, that, we, that we show towards God is authentic, which ultimately comes from Him anyway. But the reality is, is that in our humanity, we want to love God honestly and sincerely. At least I know for myself, when, I, when I'm studying God's word and I'm praying and, and singing, I want it to be honest. Because there's always something in the back of my head questioning me, are you being honest with this? Is this artificial? Are you counterfeit? Are you being fake? Are you being honest? Do you really care? These are questions that I ask myself in my own brain. So I want to be honest. I want to be sincere with God. I want my love towards God to be real. I don't want to just try to use God to get things, just to make my life better, and to use it as a source of complaints, entitlements. I want to realize that the only reason I'm here is for His glory. The only reason I exist and breathe is because of Him. And I want my worship towards Him to be real and authentic. So I can be authentic in every other area and real in every other area in my life. Point two, our relationship towards one another. In Romans 12, 10, it says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. These are one of the things that really identify us as being truly the people of God and how we treat one another. And I would say in the day that we live in today, it's an absolute and utter disgrace in the way a majority of the Christians speak to one another. And the things that they would say to each other openly and publicly on Facebook, as if Facebook is the local church. The public stonings that go on on Facebook are shameful. The way we talk about each other and talk to each other is shameful. I'm not saying that that we in this body here are being shameful. I'm saying just the majority of what goes on today is shameful. We should be the opposite. The Bible says this is one thing that is really clearly seen in the life of one who's truly been converted 
is by how we love one another. How we treat one another. He's talking about kindly affection. This is the affectionate. He's talking about being kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And this is the attitude that we have to have. The cynic behavior, the slander, the gossip. It's very dishonoring to God. And it's a sin against God. The Lord would have us be this way because in honor, in honor giving preference to one another, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And this is really our service to God is the expression of our faith in the action amongst the people of God. In verse 13, it says, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. You know, really, if you want to be honest about this, hospitality is against our nature. And I think that's why we see this in here because it can be one of the hardest things to do is to be hospitable towards another, to have someone over to your house, to invite people to do things, to want to spend time, to invite other people in your life. It takes a lot of energy to bring other people into your life. It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of time. And this is why Paul says this, that we are to distribute to the needs of the saints. We're to be given to hospitality because we can't do this in our own strength. We can't do this in our own power. We can't manufacture this from our flesh. This has to be something that literally comes from our relationship with God. Hospitality pours out of us because of our relationship with the Lord. In 1 Peter 1.22, Peter says, Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's talking, the premise here is from a heart that's been given to us by God, a pure heart, a new heart filled with the Spirit of God, new affections, new cravings, new desires, new loves. These all are manufactured from the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. In 1 John 4, 7, it says, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves knows God and is born of God. These are marks of the Christian life. In a lot of us, it sounds soupy. It sounds emotional. But in reality, this is what we are as true believers in the Lord. John goes on to say in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? That's heavy. That's heavy. Well, I love God. I love God. I preach. I do all these things. I hand out tracts and blah, blah, blah. But yet, you slander your brother's. You gossip about others. You joke about others. You make fun of others. But the reality is this is a complete contradiction of our faith. We're to love one another. Which brings us to our last point, our relationship towards our enemies. Here's another clear indication of who we are in Christ. Another token, if you would, 
Another mark of our Christianity is how we respond to conflict, how we respond to trouble. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Paul's always good to slip those things in there, right? Because he knows the heart of humanity. He knows the fallen nature of our humanity. Even being converted, right? The challenges that we face, even in our converted state. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And this could even be the pressure and persecution from those of the household of God, from other professing believers, which is worse than the outside world. Galatians 5.15, Paul dealt with this when he said, but if you bite and you devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And that's why Paul says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the whole picture of the born-again saint. It's the whole picture of a true Christian as Paul was dealing with throughout the book of Romans. And he comes to the very point to where he's talking about Christian behavior. We could talk about the gospel in its entirety, which he does. He lays it all out. God's purpose for bringing the gospel. His design. His way. But then he goes into Christian behavior. How does the Christian behave? What does his behavior look like? And how is his behavior fueled? What fuels this new behavior? And it is the spirit, as we read in Galatians, the spirit of God that bears these fruit in our lives. And it's a continuation, right? It's a sanctification throughout the entirety of our lives all the way until we take our last breath. We are a continual work in progress. So I don't say all these things as rifling them all at you in, in, in a form of guilt throwing, but just a reality of things that normally aren't usually talked about within the church. We like to talk about the capital letter sins. We'll talk about murder. We'll talk about homosexuality. We'll talk about all these sins that dominate our culture and dominate the news. We never really deal with our attitudes. We never deal with our attitudinal sins. But you realize that our attitudinal sins is what Christ condemns the most throughout the word of God. It's true. Jesus said in Luke 6.25, Woe to you and all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers, their fathers to the false prophets. Jesus is really coming against this whole idea that the scriptures support worldliness. It doesn't. Scriptures do not support any kind of worldliness. Now, don't get me wrong. We're in the world. And God did pronounce all things very good for the utilization of the Christian to use, to have, to enjoy. There are things that God has given us to enjoy. Not a touch, not taste, not lifestyle. But the reality is that we have come out from the bondage and slavery of the spirit of this world. And we've been given a new life in Jesus Christ with new habits and new desires and a new 
born again lifestyle. And this is the essence in which Paul is preaching. And this is what Jesus is coming against and saying, listen, your motive, your motive, your performance and all these things that you do are all to be seen and being spoken well of by men. See, the Pharisees were, 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 were liking the fame game. They were liking the idea of being seen as the spiritual authorities and elites of their days. And Jesus just lets them have it straight up. Basically, he says, Cursed are you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers do to the false, the false prophets. But I like what Jesus said in 6.27 in, in the, the book of Luke. He says, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Same thing that Paul was talking about. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that, what? Hate you and pray for them. Which, this is a really interesting word that he uses. Despitefully uses you and persecutes you. So what do we normally do when we're confronted with trouble or conflict in the church? How do we respond to others when somebody curses you? Someone says bad things about you. What do you do? How do you react? What is your reaction and your response? Is it, is, is it what the scriptures say? Do you bless them? Or do you run off into a another click and talk about them or just let them have it, right? Both guns blazing. And Jesus said, do good to them that hate you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. I mean, these things are impossible. I mean, I look at those things and I think of Without the grace of God and the mercy of God and by the power of his Holy Spirit, I could never accomplish these things on my own. I could never do it. I find myself even today when I'm watching the news and I'm seeing certain things talked about and, and things happening and my blood starts to boil. And I start to think to myself, boy, I just want to bring the hammer of Thor down on these people. You know, I just, it, it's, it's, I mean, in one sense, it's okay to be a man. And it's okay to, to want to protect. Those things are biblical. Self-defense is biblical. Not wanting to see evil is biblical. But the reality of what we're saying here, what is our first thought when we see these things is hatred. Hatred. It's not love. I don't, I'm not looking at those videos and going, wow, how much I love them. I'm thinking to myself, I hate them. And I want to crush them. And I want to have them removed. Instead of going, you know what? I need to bless them. I need to do good to them. And I need to pray for them. Wow. It's just so startling and shocking that Jesus would say that. And this is what he expects. But we have to come to the conclusion that there's no way this could possibly happen without his grace. So the next time... You're on YouTube or you are in the process of having a confrontation of any kind. Be reminded of these points that Jesus and Paul both laid out. That first and foremost, we want to bless those. Not with the right hook. But we want to bless them who persecute us. 
and not curse. Paul says, don't curse, don't slip up, don't fall into the language of the world because it's easy to do. They're cursing at you, you start cursing at them. It's easy, really quick. It happens so fast. This is why we need to live a lifestyle what Paul has addressed throughout these 13 verses. Paul says, but instead in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. That's a beautiful remedy. You got one side here and then Paul's telling us on the other end here to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep and be of the same mind toward one another. There's nothing more beautiful within the congregation when we see the church behaving in this way. For we are weeping with others. We are rejoicing with others. And we have the same mind towards one another. Paul says in Romans 12, 17, repay no evil for evil. He's dealing with the issue of revenge because that is in the heart of humanity is to retaliate. You say, don't curse. But also, okay, you may refrain from cursing. You may not even bless that person, but it's real easy for us to go from one extent to another. And now it's turned to revenge. I'm okay with it. I'm not going to say a word. But inside you're stewing, you're bitter, you're angry, you're seething. And everything's popping into your mind how you can get this person back. It may not be how everyone's going to see me do it, but I'm going to hold in this bitterness and I'm going to get him one way or another. And this is the revenge that we want to be vindicated immediately. But the Bible says that give place to God for wrath. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But then he gives us a remedy again, which is interesting. He says, for if your enemy is hungry, enemy, he says here, by the way, right? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. God says, you want to give him that right hook? You want to be able to lay him out cold? This is how you do it. You basically bless them by giving your enemy gifts, not in a flattering way by any means, but in a way that not only quenches your own anger and your own hatred, but it quenches the hatred and anger of the other person to such an extent. It's literally like putting fire, fires of coal upon his head. So next time someone does something to you that's worthy of a right hook, instead bless them by presenting them with a gift and watch what happens. And the conclusion to all of this, brothers and sisters, is do not be overcome by evil or by the screen I'm talking to. <laughs> but overcome evil with good. Let's say it one more time. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. I pray, Lord, that your name was glorified. And I pray, Father, that the word of God was easily understood today, that these, these practical applications of the word of God and how a Christian should behave would be instilled within us by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we'd be awakened to many of these things that we have, we have not done. The Bible says, he who sees to do good and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. 
sins of omission and sins of commission, Lord, are right here in front of our faces. But I ask you, Lord, by the power of the Spirit of God, that you would enable us to see our deficiencies, to see these areas where we need to grow, to repent of our sin, Lord, and turn to you and ask you to give us the power to operate in this way in the Christian life. Lord, our relationship to you, that it, that it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be fake, Lord. It wouldn't be fake. But it would be, it would be real, Lord. And our relationships towards each other would be genuine and real and not fake and plastic. In our relationship towards the world, our enemies, Lord, they would operate in such a way, Lord, that they would see our Father in heaven, that we would manifest this powerful testimony that God lives and he's changing and transforming his people every day. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.